well, first of all, just allow me to thank you again on behalf of the Oxford Political Review. It's genuinely a pleasure. Uh, I'm Brian, I'm its editor-in-chief, and I'm a Rhodes Scholar-elect uh, for Hong Kong, so I'll be also in Oxford next year. But, uh, Congratulations. Well, thank you wonderful. very much. Thank you. So broadly speaking, um, I envision that our discussion could be divided into two parts. The first is just more on your personal life and your uh, wonderful career. And the second part is more on your, your thoughts and, say, contemporary affairs and your views on what's going on in the world right now. So it's broadly in that sort of uh, two segment or two part uh, format that this interview will be conducted. Hope that's all right with you. That's fine. Wonderful. So to just get straight into it, um, what were some of the greatest challenges that you encountered as uh, a leading female politician in Canadian politics? And to what extent do you think these issues applied more or less to, say, sort of your the particular context of Canada, per se? Or, or do you think the generally universalizable elements of your experience that also apply to, say, politicians, female politicians in Bangladesh, in Singapore, in Malaysia, and whatnot. So so that's sort of the first opener question. Well, I think if we look at women who have achieved political leadership around the world, and incidentally, I'm a founding member of an organization, the Council of Women World Leaders, which is uh, all of the women, current and former, uh, female presidents and prime ministers, and we are over 60 members now. So there's actually quite a number of women who have held these positions. But uh, at my time, there weren't very many. And there seem to be two different uh, approaches. One is what I might call the dynastic link. Those who come to public life with a famous name, perhaps a father who uh, had done the job, um, and therefore a kind of... Uh, uh, foot in the door. Um, and I think sometimes when women come from uh, political dynasties, people are prepared to ascribe to them some of the qualities that they've seen in the paterfamilias or the, you know, the male members. Yeah. And then there are people like me and like Margaret Thatcher and Angela Merkel and others who come from, uh, who are sort of sui generis, who are, um, uh, who do not come from any of those kinds of links. Uh, sometimes, if you're early on in the game, I think of when I was elected uh, student council president of my high school, uh, I was the first to be elected in that position. And I think sometimes people see you as a charming anomaly. So it's not that you represent a new wave of women doing these things, but my goodness, look at this girl who's doing things that you know only boys do. Uh, you know, how amazing is that? Um, but we don't have to change our views about you know who should be leading us or what the state of the world should be. Um, so on that sense, I think over time, as more women uh, have these positions, it becomes less of um, an anomaly, uh, less of a novelty. Um, and that has two things going for it. One is that it... Um, uh, familiarizes people, I, I guess is the best way to put it, with the female voice and physiognomy in a position of leadership. When I became prime minister, nobody who looked or sounded like me had ever done that job before. And that triggers a lot of visceral 
rejection uh, by people, even if intellectually they think they're in favor of uh, women doing things. If it just if, if you just don't look or sound like anybody who's done that job, we know, for example, that being tall for a man is very advantageous in being a leader. If you think that the disproportionate number of CEOs of large companies are tall, that in American elections, it's all, almost always been the case that the taller of the candidates yeah. wins. So there are ways in which as a woman, you simply don't correspond to that. And secondly, for people who um, you know want to have uh, a privileged position in power, and particularly if men feel that these positions ought to be theirs, then as women become more numerous in these jobs and you know less of an anomaly uh, and less of a novelty, then that can also trigger a kind of sexist backlash um, where people feel. It, you see this is in almost any non-prototypical person. It could be a question of race. Yeah. It could, you know, anything that doesn't correspond with the, the privilege and entitlement that has traditionally characterized those who are able to do that job without anybody questioning whether somebody like them has the right even to be considered. So as you know, the years have gone by, as more women do these jobs, I think on the one hand, it creates a greater sense of familiarity and acceptability. And in many cases, uh, people are very positive about having women do these jobs and feel women bring something new. But at the same time, it can also trigger uh, even greater resistance among those who are not open to new faces uh, in the boardrooms and in the, the uh, halls of power. Right. And I th actually sort of just want to bring in here what Sheryl Sandberg said about lean-in feminism or the idea that I think one brand of, say, female empowerment, as she argues, would come through best when female or women adopt masculine traits and characteristics and trying to sound or, or at least appear more assertive and also in many ways aggressive. Whereas a lot of criticisms of lean-in feminism have been that this seems to distort or also skew the environment such that only those who are most able to conform with masculine traits or expectations or perform or play that so-called game, so to speak, would manage to sort of get ahead in the game, whereas many others who are disadvantaged because they don't want to or have very good reasons not want to lean in are therefore excluded out of that particular sort of conception of feminism or female empowerment. I was just wondering, um, the right honourable uh, Prime Minister, what, what your thoughts would be on on this conception of fe uh, female empowerment and also feminism? Well, you see, I think it's a little more complicated than what Sheryl Sandberg might suggest, because there are ways in which women um, who adopt what are seen as masculine forms of behavior or affect um, find themselves being pushed back. Yeah. In other words, that these things are not tolerated from women. So in research that was done years ago on American corporations, a book by a business professor called Judy Rosner uh, called America's Competitive Secrets, uh, Women Managers, yeah. she found that women tended to prefer a more interactive, collaborative style of leadership as opposed to the more command and control style that men preferred. And what we know is that the collaborative style is, in fact, very effective. And when men are trained to do it, they get a lot of credit for it. But one of the reasons that women tend to adopt that more collaborative uh, uh, approach is, you know, partly perhaps because in their own socialization, you know, they've learned it's effective, but also because they can't get away with being command and control. 
they, you know, that that if they arrogated themselves the same kind of authoritarian views that man and 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 manners that men have, there's a pushback. Now, an exception to this was somebody like Margaret Thatcher, um, who was very authoritarian, but it was also interesting because she could also be, you know, quite alluring and quite feminine. She was quite interesting in how she balanced the female. Uh, nature of her, of her, you know, so she couldn't be accused of not being FEMA, but she was yeah. very, very strong and I think quite authoritarian with her ministers. But she was also seen as uh, unique. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever saw her as being the thin edge of a wedge of women who were going to come in. She didn't uh, seek out to uh, promote other women. And it may be that she felt that she, that if she did that, it would weaken her stature. I don't know. Uh, I mean, she's she remarked, you know, you know, what did the women's movement ever do for me? That sort of thing. I think she saw herself as unique. Yeah. And I think that that I mean, when I was young, people used to say to me, "Oh, Kim, you're so smart. You're the smartest girl I've ever met." And what the implication was, you know, was that yes, you're very smart, but you know, others aren't. And of course, when you're young, you can be easily flattered. You go, well, I guess, I guess I am pretty smart. You know, don't know how the others are doing, but, and it's, and you know, when I got into my twenties, I began to realize that, yeah, I'm smart and the world is full of smart women. And, um, and I probably not the smartest one they've ever met. Um, and by, but by telling me that I am, it, undermines my sense of solidarity with other women and it undermines the sense that anything that I might accomplish might be reflective of what women in general can do as opposed to this woman can do. So as long as you are seen as kind of unique and an individual, you may be able to get away with these other kinds of behaviors. Um, But I think that what what is right about what Sheryl Sandberg is saying is that if you want to be a leader, you have to lead. Yeah. And that means finding ways of being persuasive. It means having confidence in your own views. It doesn't mean that you're arrogant or you don't listen to other people. And in fact, Margaret Thatcher, uh, as she became less and less interested in listening to other people's views, her leadership was weakened as a result of that. So I think that, that um, you know, you... you you need to be able to to mobilize people. But I think what some women have a concern about is this fear of power and not wanting to seem to be power hungry. Yeah. And yet power exists and somebody's going to have it. Yeah. And if you would exercise it in a an intelligent, ethical, socially responsible way in the, in the national interest, why shouldn't it be you? So I yeah. think... Um, but I think what she's also talking about is that when people don't think you belong, when you are not prototypical, whether it is because you're a woman or a person of color or somebody who is, has a disability, then those who are in the default category, the, the entitled people who think they belong there, will very often make it difficult for you to be heard, and difficult for you to, to assert yourself. And yeah. I think... But I think it's not just a matter of leaning forward and blathering. It's a matter of really understanding how to read a room, understanding how to assert yourself in ways that will actually enable you to gradually get get a foothold and a grip on the levers that you want to be able to control. And would you say that your thoughts here about leadership are sort of what what you in many ways embodied in your career in the sense that it's about 
the balance between standing up for what you think is right, but also not just becoming excessively belligerent and in many ways uh, over-aggressive, not because it's over-aggressive for women, but because it's over-aggressive for anyone at large. Do you think that balance was struck in your own tenure and leadership style, or do you think you learned one way more than the other? Well, I think the fact that I was seen as a leader by my colleagues and that when my predecessor stepped down as leader of the party, well over half the caucus, you know, immediately supported me. And that was a, re a, a reflection, I think, of the way I had dealt with very difficult issues, particularly as justice minister, um, and, uh, and not made enemies, although you know, passing a record amount of legislation. I think I was seen even by people. I can remember when one of my colleagues who was the chair of what you might call the Evangelical Caucus came to see me and, you know, said they would like to support me. Now, I was, you know, an urban, pro-choice, pro-gay rights, a much more liberal person than he and those that, that, that he represented were, but they trusted me. And so, you know, it wasn't even just a matter of everybody agreeing, but there was a, an affect and a level of trust and, yeah. uh, the, and support that was there. But I think one of the challenges I faced was that when I, in the summer of 1993, when I was prime minister, but we weren't in election mode yet, and I had a very short period of time before we had to call an election. Uh, my predecessor waited until halfway through the fifth year of a mandate in a parliamentary system yeah. to step down, which you will understand if you live <laughs> in a parliamentary system. Yes. But um, uh, at the Gallup uh, polling uh, company uh, announced at one point in the summer of 93 that I had the highest approval rating for a prime minister in 30 years. Now, this was as part of their you know, revolving polling, but it was quite, quite a remarkable thing. And I think what that showed was that when I was in governing mode, people really liked me. And I did a lot of things. I mean, when I you know, had to appoint my, my first cabinet, I, I reduced the size of cabinet, I reorganized the ministries of the government in ways that have, that have uh, remained. I created some new ministries that still exist. And I uh, had a very successful G7 summit. I mean, all of these things were very good. But once you get into election mode, you have to be more confrontational. You have to be more aggressive. I mean, it is a fight. It, you are, you know, it is adversarial. And I think that that may have been part of a, a, a vulnerability for me in that it's very hard to go out and lead a campaign um, and not be forceful and not you know, be aggressive. Now, there were a whole lot of other things that were going on at the same time. The, the, the coalition that had elected our party in 1984 had already come apart, started to come apart between 84 and 88. But in 1988, the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement turned out to be the issue that really consolidated our support and returned our party for a second majority government. In 1993, we had no such issue. Uh, one of our Quebec members, ministers, had resigned over a failure to achieve a certain constitutional amendment, gone back to Quebec and created his own party. Uh, which really took a lot of our Quebec vote. A party in the West that had been very, very critical now had the opportunity to uh, erode some of our vote there. So there were things happening quite independent of me uh, or anyone who would have led, led our party. But I think that uh, I look at things that, that have been written by scholars. I mean, I don't rely on my own judgment. But for example, there is a, a political scientist named Linda Trimble from the University of Alberta who published a book at the end of 2017 called Ms. Prime Minister that looks at the media treatment of me, 
of Julia Gillard in Australia yeah. and the first two women prime ministers of New Zealand, uh, yeah. Jenny Shipley and Helen Clark. And what is very interesting in, in her analysis of, of the media treatment of me was how sexist it was. Yeah. And um, and it, you know and, and, and one of the and, and sexism doesn't consist of people saying I don't support women. Nobody ever says that. Yeah. What it consists of is a double standard, a setting of a of a higher threshold, the never getting the benefit of the doubt. Because at the end of the day, for people, for many people, you don't really belong there. And, and I think particularly of the National Press Gallery, for whom national politics is what they deal with all the time. So when somebody comes along that doesn't meet their preconception and their implicit attitude towards who gets to do the job they are looking for ways to reconcile that discomfort and they would never say they'd rather walk over hot coals and say you know i don't support her because she's a woman but as soon as i would do something that it would enable them to say aha there that shows she doesn't belong there then it made them comfortable (laughs) so i think that was that was part of the challenge that i faced in that election campaign and I was, yeah, and that, that's a very interesting sort of set of thoughts because I wanted to ask you, if you wouldn't mind me asking, uh, was there a particular episode of sexism that you experienced that made you feel particularly reviled at the way women were treated at large and convinced you of the need to just stand up for for the voices of 50% of the population? Uh, if there's such a turning point, would you would you be able to recall what it might have looked like in your... Well, yeah, it wasn't so much gender, but for example, one one reporter who had said to me at one point, if the curl in his lip, you know, I've known every prime minister since Lester Pearson, and the implication was, and you know, you're no Lester Pearson. Well, no, I wasn't. I was Kim Campbell. I didn't look or sound like any of my predecessors. Yeah. Um, but at one point, he tried to accuse me of having a hidden agenda on social programs, and you know, and that's which incidentally our provincial jurisdiction. And I said I'd made a commitment to the provinces not to make changes without consulting them. And he said, "Well, shouldn't you be having these conversations now?" And I said, "An election is not the time to talk about these issues. I like to do federal provincial negotiations." And he just said to the others, "You know, we've got her, gotcha." You know. So it became this thing that supposedly I had said an election wasn't the time to talk about serious issues, which, of course, was not what I was talking about at all. And it was clear to everybody that I wasn't. And it was also clear that I was traveling the country talking about serious issues. So it wasn't as if I was, you know, avoiding subjects that I couldn't. I mean, I was the prime minister. But it was that sort of thing where... You know, it was it was just so outrageous. And what was interesting is that Jean Chrétien, my um, my my main opponent, who, who who won the election, at one point said, "Let me get elected first. Let me get elected, then ask me what I'm going to do." Yeah. Now, so but you see, that didn't become a gaffe for him because he belonged. You know, he was he was a man. He'd been there a long time. And it was just, oh, that's just Jean putting his foot in his mouth again. So there's infinite tolerance. Whereas for me, I mean, I was being punished for something that I had not in fact said. uh, And that it was very clear to people. And I remember talking, there were two women who were on that same press bus who represented television stations. And they said on the bus, they said, you know, that's not what she meant. He said, no, we got her, we got her. And of course, then you have this dynamic that if one reporter reports on something that you know that, that the prime minister said something negative or a mistake and the others don't report it then their editors say well why aren't you reporting that 
They say, well, because it didn't really happen. But they, the pressure is on them to also be part of the story. So that kind of group think among the press can, you know, exacerbate yeah. a dynamic when people, you know, want to, to uh, uh, get you for something that you and didn't even do. And there's an episode in Canadian political history that I'm quite fascinated about, which is a C-43 legislation, which I believe you were sort of involved in as a part of Moroni's cabinet, even though you were by no means in any way sort of the main proponent of it. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts in general about the C-43? And what, Remind me what the subject was, because I don't remember all the numbers of ah, so, so it was about uh, abortion and the, uh, the legislation. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, I wound up inheriting that bill. What happened in the summer of uh, in 1988, before I became a member of Parliament, yeah. the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the abortion yes. provisions of our criminal code, and basically said that to uh, to make impose criminal penalties on women under those circumstances was uh, was a violation of charter rights, and the the, the case was all having to do with a, a Quebec doctor who had set up a freestanding abortion clinic in, in defiance of the law. Yeah. During the campaign in '88, the Prime Minister said that perhaps we should legislate again. Uh, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be out before I'm in because I was quite happy not having any legislation. Yeah. But there were some people who felt that there should be some reflection in the law. So C-43 arose when, first of all, a committee of cabinet ministers could not come up with a formula. Yeah. Finally, a committee of caucus was created, and they came up with this legislation, which actually... Uh, was probably as much as you could get under the law, but it, it didn't restrict abortion at all. It simply said that abortion was illegal unless a doctor had formed the committee that it was uh, the the opinion that it was necessary for the life or health of the woman, and that health was had a very broad definition of, of social and as well as and psychological health as well as physical health. So in a sense, what it did was it codified um, a very liberal approach to abortion. But it, but the only law that we, the, the only legal authority to do that was the criminal code. So it would have put in the criminal code, but basically would not have imposed penalties. But so, but it was a no-win situation because pro-choice people didn't want to have anything in the criminal code, and they would say, "Oh, we were criminalizing abortion," even though we they, we weren't. I mean, they actually, I mean, it was. I was actually astonished when I saw the bill because it was really uh, the anti anti-abortion people said, "Well, it's abortion on demand," and I mean, they were right. So they didn't like it because it didn't limit abortion. Pro-choice people didn't like it because it, again, put abortion into the criminal code, even though it didn't put restrictions. So it was kind of a no-win situation. Yeah. So, the, so when I became Minister of Justice, uh, the bill was already, uh, you know, in Parliament, etc. My predecessor as Justice Minister had, had dealt with it. But it was a bill that had been drafted by our caucus. It didn't come up from the normal way of creating uh, legislation. So, you know, the, when the Prime Minister said to me, you know, the good news is you're going to be Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, you know, I'm the mm. first woman to have that portfolio. Yeah. The bad news is you now inherit the conduct of the abortion. <laughs> anyway, it, it passed the House of Commons um, and then uh, failed in the Senate. So since then, there's been no uh, statutory uh framework for abortion in Canada, although the the policy of the Canadian Medical Association has some, uh, you know, ethical views, and for example, that abortions would not normally be a, be uh, performed after 20 weeks, and, uh, you know, these kinds of things. So it was, um, you know, I think, I think the Prime Minister felt that for those, uh, and we had quite a number of people in our caucus who were 
who were anti-choice, who were very much against abortion, that not doing anything would have been a negative thing to do. But for those who were very pro-choice, and we had many of the same number of those, yeah. uh, they feared legislation that might uh, impose some restrictions that the Supreme Court's decision had suggested uh, were not really appropriate. Yeah. So. Because it did seem that the bill, uh, or at least the way that was criticised back then, was that it would hypothetically place the onus of demonstration of both physical and emotional health, later on expanded to include psychological health, as well as concerns with regards to demonstrating evidence that you have met or performed due diligence before attempting abortion. The, the worry there was that both of these requirements would introduce a, an actual penalty associated with abortion that was previously not codified or at least not enshrined in law. So well, I guess there the, was previous, the, the previous law had said that that abortions could be performed if they were approved by a therapeutic abortion committee in a hospital. And the practice across most of the country is that those committees did not, in fact, look behind a doctor's recommendation. So if a doctor referred a patient, they didn't try to second guess that doctor. So the suggestion was that what we were asking of doctors was simply to do what was ethical practice was to form an opinion, you know, and inquire into the, the patient situation, um, you know, before performing a procedure. And that right. would be, you know, eth ethically required. Anyway, the problem with the previous law was that, for example, in Quebec, the hospitals were all Catholic hospitals, and they would not create therapeutic abortion committees. So there was no way in which a woman could seek to yeah. Uh, meet the criteria. And that's why Henry Morgenthaler established a freestanding clinic in mm. Montreal uh, in clear defiance of the law. But interestingly enough, Quebec juries wouldn't convict him. Yeah. And yeah. the appeals of his of his case were, were brought by the crown, not by not by not by him. He was never convicted right. of anything. Uh, so anyway, I mean, it was a very interesting situation. And when I spoke to doctors, I mean, the doctor's preference was not to have any law. Yeah. Uh, and they wondered whether people might try to, uh, you know, engage in spurious um, uh, prosecutions. Yeah. It seemed highly unlikely. And of course, particularly in places like British Columbia, where prosecutions are are the the prerogative of the crown, and uh, they're not they're not in initiated by police, which in fact they can be in Ontario. So anyway, at the end of the day, we don't we never saw how it worked out, but it was probably as liberal. Um, a statute as you could have and still have a provision in the criminal code. And as I say, it came close to being the law. Uh, it isn't. And it's interesting now, for example, with the conservatives under Mr. Harper were government, uh, many of his members wanted to introduce legislation on abortion and he would not allow them to. Yeah. And uh, this is a, this is a very interesting issue that uh, that there still are people who would like to legislate on abortion. So would you say that uh, perhaps actually the failure of it to pass in the Senate ironically or inadvertently meant that this sort of de facto uh, removal from legislation or the sphere of legislation of abortion law could have been a blessing in disguise because now that you look back at it it's clearly meant that at least there's some attempt even on the part of more socially conservative forces to to refrain from codifying or at least legislating new laws around abortion even though harper's party i would say was probably more socially conservative than uh, the progressive conservatives that you had yeah. back then yeah no question i mean my view you know, I, my irritation um, with some, with one in particular person who voted against it in the Senate was not that she voted against it, but.
but is that she would not allow me to do my job, which was to try to advocate for the bill, answer questions, and then leave it up to people. I, I dealt with all the other senators. Yeah. And she never quite understood that because I became minister and that this was a bill from our caucus, I felt an obligation to give it the best shot I could. Yeah. And to answer questions and then leave it up to people to vote. The government, yeah. members of the government were bound to vote for it, but senators were free. Uh, private members were free. Yeah. So, um, yes, in a way, I suppose you could say it was a blessing in disguise. I think if it had been passed, it would not have resulted in legal cases of abortion. Because, again, I don't think there's there, there was no way to look behind a doctor's opinion. Yeah. If the doctor says, you know, I'm, you know, uh, Somebody comes in, they want a termination of a pregnancy, and the doctor, you know, I mean, the doctor has to ask questions because supposing somebody comes in and you know they want to terminate a pregnancy because they're under a misapprehension that they might, for example, have some be carrying some hereditary disease mm-hmm. or there's some mm-hmm. reason, you know, you can't have a doctor just say, oh, you know, fine, sure, next, you know, I mean, there is an ethical requirement for a doctor, uh, yeah. you know, even today. You know, yeah. it would be unethical for a doctor not to uh, actually engage with the patient to determine sure. uh, that that they're, that they're you know they're they're it's an informed decision, but they're they're not allowed to. I mean, they can't look behind it and they can't try to persuade you. Yeah. They just need to be sure that that they are performing in the most ethical yeah. way themselves. So. Now, you mentioned just then that you were at this sort of height of popularity uh, when you first became leader of the party or progressive conservatives in 1993 but it seemed that in october the electoral tides quite rapidly turned because even by the end of september you were still having quite a significant lead over i think uh your your, your uh, main competitor or competitor party then so it seemed that october was a bit of a a turning point for the fate of the progressive conservatives i was just wondering what do you think the main causes of that drastic turn was uh, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure that those polls that that we were all that far ahead, and I think that 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 as people began saw that I was popular, then there was a much greater effort on the part of the other parties to undermine me. I mean, I was obviously the target for everybody because, you know, I was the prime minister. Um, and the last week of the campaign, my campaign put out some negative ads, which they didn't clear with me, that, that you know, seemed to be mocking uh, Jean Chrétien, and those were disastrous. But those were also a sign for my campaign that they felt that they needed to do something desperate. I mean, it was terrible. And again, you know, the trouble with the campaign was that I, I didn't have time to create a whole new campaign team. Because we were so late in in uh, dissolving the government to go for an election, yeah. Uh, so I inherited the team that my predecessor had put together, and they didn't have a clue how to run a campaign for somebody who wasn't Brian Mulroney. Yeah. And and there are things that that women can't do that men can do, but there was never any effort made even to capitalize on the fact that I was a woman by reaching out to other. Uh, constituencies, women who supported me were very frustrated that they couldn't get the campaign to, you know, support them doing events with other women that would have been, you know, very helpful, not until the very end. So the campaign was really, uh, I think, a disaster, Um, uh, mainly because the campaign chair had taken the view during the leadership campaign that he should not be, you know, be partisan or he should not, you know, he should be neutral. Yeah. But 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 being neutral for him meant being totally disengaged, 
So that by the, you know, whoever had won that leadership, it would either be me, a, the first woman, or Jean Charest, who would have been an extremely young person to yeah. run for prime. I mean, either way, there were going to be challenges for a campaign that one would need to think about. So there was very little thinking uh, or planning. Um, and if I had known that, I in fact might have tried to name my own campaign team. But I assumed that things would have been you know, structures were in place and that we were going to need them so quickly that there wasn't time to really start from scratch. Did you think that you sort of, perhaps in that particular election, what you could have done differently was to focus more on local constituency politics in terms of defending your track record against uh, Hedy Fry, who, who seemed to have been just a novice and an experienced newcomer into the political political scene then? Because she, she wasn't, she is now the longest serving member of Parliament, I believe, in Canada, but she wasn't uh, back then uh, that long serving, if I recall correctly. Well, well, first of all, my constituency was not a safe seat. Yeah. You know, when I won it in 1988, it was a very significant victory. But also when you're the prime minister, you don't have time to campaign in your own riding. Yeah. You know, I mean, the reason why Jean Sherry was able to hold his constituency was in the last two weeks of the campaign, he stopped campaigning nationally and went home to his riding. I didn't have that luxury. That's fair. So uh, so I was the only Western progressive conservative who outpulled the Reform Party candidate yeah. in her riding. But I just didn't have uh, the, the, the ability to, to focus on my riding. If I had, I think I might have been able to hold my seat. But, um, you know, there's also a dynamic that happens when people begin to feel that... Um, you know, things are changing, you know, and, and also, you know, Canadians have a tendency to change their governments. Yeah. We've been in power for two mandates. And, uh, you know, the, the as I say, our Quebec vote went to the Bloc Québécois. A lot of our Western vote went to the Reform Party. Yeah. And it, it was hard to believe that people would vote for parties that couldn't form a government. Yeah. But people wanted change. And... Uh, you know, at the Reform Party, were very vicious about about us, and and uh, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, that was a very negative thing. That basically yeah. it undermined our party, and they then had to spend the next few electoral cycles trying to make their way back to the ground yeah. that the old Progressive Conservative Party had held, but they could never recreate that sense of what the old Progressive Conservative Party was. They remained a much more right wing. Uh, uh, organization and Canadians tend to be pretty centrist. Yeah. And actually on that note though, if there's one thing you could have done differently with a benefit of hindsight, what, what's the main pitch or change you would have potentially adopted would have been to adopt a more radically reformist or restructuring centered approach. It would have been more distancing from Mulroney that you might've wanted to put forward. Well, you see, you're suggesting that there's a formula that could have won, and I'm not convinced there was. Um, I think that if, if I think if Brian already had thought he could win that election, he'd have run again. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, I think he would have done better because unpopular, he was the most unpopular prime minister in the history of Canadian polling. Yeah. And, you know, history has, you know, given a more generally benign view about his government, but it was he was pretty unpopular at the time. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that that if he had stayed, he could have fought for his record in a way. Once an unpopular leader steps down, you put your your successor in a difficult situation. I never yeah. criticized him ever. But 
I also had to provide a new vision. But he could have taken Jean Chrétien on about his record in a different way. Yeah. And he would have, you know, and even if he didn't win, I think we would have done better. Then would have been the time for him to step down and allow for a new leader to be to be uh, chosen, as Stephen Harper did, as a matter of fact, after 2015, yeah. which I think was the right way to do it. But he didn't want to lose an election. You know, it didn't suit him to to leave in a defeat. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm people are people. And, you know, he had one, two kind of historic majorities. And I think he wanted that to be his legacy. He didn't want to go out on a defeat. Uh, and I think, but I think it was pretty clear that we were going to have a hard time yeah. winning that election. And yeah. it's because of things that had happened that the, uh, you know, the gradual sort of disaffection with some of the West that made the reform party seem appealing yeah. and, and the loss of our Quebec vote. I mean, I held on to our base, but yeah. the problem was that our base was spread across the country in ways Absolutely. that didn't translate into seats. And would you say, actually, the way Brian uh, or Brian Mulroney handled the entire situation is reminiscent to what you said earlier on about the tendency of uh, men to get away with a lot more than women in politics? Because had it been a, a woman uh, in his position, I, I can think of Theresa May as an analogy. Uh, she would have been skewered in many ways for uh, deciding to resign either so oh, yeah. shortly before the election or just in general for refusing to resign. So for for, for, for women, it's basically catch-22. You do something, you get condemn you don't do something you still get skewered at the same time well it was very frustrating in the party because the people felt you know is he going to stay is he not going to stay and uh very was very very difficult for people to know whether we were going to be in another leadership or not um and i think that you know when he finally you know realized well also because we had the referendum the charlottetown accord referendum yeah in the fall of 92 and that failed so he did not want to you know, resign on a defeat. No, yeah. And, you know, and part of his, you know, his narrative was that he had left the party in great shape and we had money and we had politics. Well, this was just BS. Yeah. You know, supposedly we, we had this economic policy. No, excuse me, where I don't where you put it because I never found it. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, he, he could not say, you know, I've done my best. I've led us to two uh, historic majorities. And, you know, my popularity has run out. We've had a, a tumultuous time in government. Yeah. But we've done some great things. We brought in the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. We brought in yeah. serious tax reform with the GST. People don't like it, but nobody's ever going to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, you know, the people promising they were going to get rid of it, and I knew they wouldn't because yeah. I, I knew what it was. Uh, unsuccessful attempts to amend the Constitution, but undertaken uh, in goodwill and perhaps laying the groundwork for things to happen in the future. I mean, there were a lot of ways you could have that narrative and just simply say, yeah. you know, but I'm not the one to take us. Instead of yeah. saying, you know, I'm leaving us in great shape and we, you know, well, that just wasn't the case. So, and, and you know, and I, it's funny. I mean, it can it can be aggravating, but, you know, I've, I've long learned not to, you know, to expect people to be people and in all the good <laughs> and bad things of that, that yes. encompasses. And actually, I wanted to sort of follow up on that, on the subject of leadership, which seems to be a perfect way to transition into a discussion on your sort of views on current affairs. Um, the, the current Conservative Party, the Tories in Canada, seem to offer some significant departures from the Progressive Conservatives back in your days, both on social and economic dimensions. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on uh, uh, the current leader's leadership of the party, especially given uh, the recent election? Well, you know, I don't really have a strong view, and and I don't think it's something I really want to wade into. Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of a you know an elder states person now, 
But I will say that there has been uh, a tendency, and we see it in, in the UK, we see it in the United States, yeah. and to some degree among the Conservatives in Canada, yeah. for people to be in the thrall of highly discredited economic theories. And I think Canada is less uh, subject to that in the sense yeah. that um, we're a more egalitarian society than the United States and, and, yeah. and I think Britain in some ways at the moment. But, you know, the, the, the sense that somehow, you know, I mean, I, yes, taxation burdens should be manageable. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who, who believes that, you know, the, the public purse is something that's, you know, infinite and people shouldn't be deemed for this. I mean, I think I'm a person of, of moderate views and, and values. Yeah. But I also do believe in the, in the sense of what we share together and the pernicious if, effects of inequality, which we are now seeing all sorts of quite excellent research demonstrating that this is one of the most uh, divisive and uh, corroding uh, effects in a society is when you yeah. have great inequalities. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I think Canada has avoided some things and i think we're, we're socially a pretty centrist and fairly liberal country and we have a lot of challenges and a lot of problems yeah i think what frustrates me enormously is the extent to which climate change has become yeah. seen as a partisan issue and i have said quite you know i, I don't get involved in things but i will not i've said quite publicly that any party that does not have a serious approach to climate change will never get my vote i mean i'm sorry we are now I mean, I just saw my old friend Antonio Guterres speaking in advance of this, the meeting, the climate meeting in Madrid, you know, where he says that, yeah. you know, it's the climate change is not over the horizon. It's it's approaching us dramatically. And we are, you know, even to the extent that we've had some international uh, commitments and collaboration yeah. in the Paris Agreement, we're not keeping up with our, our uh, commitments. And the fact that, that, well, I think part of it is is huge amounts of money spent by the carbon industry in, yeah. in the carbon lobby to try to convince people that the science is uncertain when it's not. And in fact, by pressuring scientists, uh, you know, that, that, who felt that they had, you know, they, they'd better not be seen to be exaggerating, they have understated the dangers so that now the reality is coming at us faster and harder than even they had predicted. Yeah. And uh, so the fact that there's any kind of partisan difference uh, I mean, the notion that a, that a conservative party, a party that believes in uh, and that believes in market solutions to things, you know, carbon pricing, you know, one of the best ways. Yeah. How do you get people to change their behavior? Give them those incentives instead of, you know, subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, which is killing <laughs> us. You, you need to put taxes yeah. in places that will help people to develop the habits and will will build and support the, the steps that we need to take. So. You know, I'm I'm totally puzzled, uh, but also dismayed at what has happened uh, in the political polarization and the uh, the the the, uh, the ideological uh, positions of so-called conservative parties. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we I was never a conservative in the American sense. With yeah. it, they've always been a bit more off the wall to me. But yeah. there is a conservative tradition. Uh, in you know the Anglo, you know Canadian other countries, um, which is not which is actually quite supportive of social goals. Absolutely. But 
but but but is is if anything just a little suspicious of of vast projects of social engineering and the notion that you can somehow uh, use government to yeah. to remake society, and uh, you know those attempts have often you know uh, resulted either in terrible failures or in uh, movements towards a more authoritarian uh, regime. So. You know, it's it's more. I think one British scholar called conservatives the philosophy of imperfection. Mm. In other words, the notice that you can't perfect society, but you can certainly try to make it better. Yeah. But but if if your goal is to deal with real people and real societies and try to make them the best they can be, that's very different from the the notion of some kind of uh, ultimate perfectibility and utopian, which often leads to you know drastic steps with bad results. And it's funny because I think in many ways I find uh, Trump's sort of government uh, right south of the border, uh, Trump's government precisely reflecting the kind of social engineering that conservatives, as you pointed out just then, would generally abhor if they were indeed committed to reducing social engineering. And that a lot of Trump's rhetoric and bombast seems to be about creating divisions and creating divisions in a way to suit political interests and goals. And I was just wondering what your thoughts might be in terms of both the U.S. political situation or more generally the U.S.-Canada relations in light of uh, the ongoing, uh, well, challenges from uh, a certain Mr. Trump in a President Trump in that sense. (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of my views are a reflection, I suppose, of my age that I've, you know, I've lived through a lot. I'm a daughter of two war World War II veterans. Both my parents were in uniform in the war. Um, I was a Soviet specialist when I was younger. So the, you know, the first inkling I got of Donald Trump uh, being an admirer of Vladimir Putin, (laughs) I felt that in and of itself disqualified him from being president. I think he has done so many things. I I mean, my hair is curling about the NATO meeting now because, you know, there's only one person who has an interest in NATO coming apart, and that's Vladimir Putin. Well, I suppose Xi Jinping does too. But, you know, these are things that when people, again, goes back to the philosophy of imperfection, the institutions that were created after World War II uh, out of that crisis destructive time are not perfect. And we always need to rethink things and try to make them better. And, you know, should NATO be expanded? I mean, I think the European Union is a miracle if you look at the history of Europe. And I think Brexit is, you know, a a self-inflicted wound. But that, alas, is not just going to hurt Britain. I think it is a a wound that Britain is inflicting on the world. And I am deeply angry about it. Um, And, you know, as a citizen of a country that made huge sacrifices to... Uh, to defeat fascism in Europe and to save Great Britain. Uh, so, you know, I just, I just, you know, find it extraordinary. And I think we need to, you know, make sure that young people understand the history, that that how they are living and that many of the things they have, you know, were, were bought at very high prices. I, you yeah. know, I have homes in Europe and, and, you know, where there are a lot of graveyards with a lot of young Canadians who never got a chance to have a future. And uh, we have an obligation to them. So um, I, I worry very much about the legacy. And, and again, you know, th- these are not things that when, when you have somebody like Trump attacking these institutions, then you get into these stupid arguments that are quite aside from the point yeah. of what we should be arguing about, which is how do we make them better? Are Absolutely. they still working 
you know, in today's economy as well as they worked, you know, back in the 80s. I mean, the world is changing, economies are changing. How do we update? How do we make our institutions better? But I am pleased to see that there are some places in Europe where people are pushing back. I'm pleased that, that the Italians, you know, got close to the abyss and pushed back, uh, you know, from having a, a very right-wing so uh, prime minister i think you know i think that there are people who do get it yeah. but donald trump i think is is a force for terrible evil um and that that whether it's ignorance on his part or that he is owned by somebody like vladimir putin <laughs> or that there is a mentality that i don't understand yeah. that sees dictatorship and uh you know, that kind of, of undemocratic political force yeah. is something valuable. I don't know. And, and and the fact that he can still have his head in the sand about climate change, uh, it just boggles my mind. I mean, to me, those attitudes are like crimes against humanity. Yes. Because they are, they are, uh, they, they hurt everybody. I will um, nevertheless sort of he's being held accountable. Yeah, I will nevertheless sort of semi push back against it. And I think whilst obviously uh, both you and I have, I think, very similar views on our thoughts on Trump, it does appear that even from the sort of majority or the popular vote that was won by Andrew Scheer in, in Canada and also Trump's not winning the popular vote, but winning the overarching electoral college, that there seems to be a large group of individuals who feel disillusioned with the broadly socially liberal, economically centre-right consensus that was, I wouldn't say perpetuated, but certainly the dominant hegemonic mode or, or mode of vivendi between the 1990 or 1980s and then the early 2000s. It does seem that there's just a massive sort of backlash and rebuking of this ever since the early 2010s, i.e. the past decade. So maybe the sort of mentality that this is something we ought to be wary of is certainly true, but I, would, I was just also wondering if you have any thoughts as to how we can combat this apparent disconnect in values and thoughts and culture and ultimately perhaps moralities between two distinct groups of people and sentiments on the ground in the West right now? Well, you know, I think truth is a very useful thing. And I think a lot of um, the kinds of things that, that Trump's people, uh, Trump supporters uh, believe are untrue. And I think he deliberately lies to create a vision of the world that is false and therefore leads people to uh, support things that are totally uh, unsupported by reality and therefore to be incidentally dissuaded from or distracted from the forces that are actually impoverishing and denying them. I mean, the, the forces of inequality um, have grown enormously and that's because there's been this uh, you know, idea that somehow we have to, you know, lower the tax rates for, for wealthy people and allow huge accumulations of wealth. And that, you know, the, the trickle down theory of uh, economics has been, you know, dis, dis, uh, disproved and yeah. discredited for so long. But, you know, there are lots of interesting people who have written about, you know, the way that people distract ordinary people and Absolutely. voters from the forces that are really hurting them. Yeah. And Donald Trump is an expert at that. That's uh, uh, demagoguery. 
that is fascism. All of these things that that try to make people believe that they have uh, that that some things will give them meaning. And you see, you know, the, the things that he's done in his trade wars and things. And yeah. you know, some of his followers saying, "Well, it's hurting us, but we're sure he knows what he's doing." Well, he doesn't know what he's doing, and it is hurting you. But it's yeah. not hurting the people who are that that he's in league with. He's not in league with you. He's not interested in you. Yeah. So you know, I think there's a lot of uh, demagoguery and, you know, bogus ideas. And it's not that, and I think there's a lot of discomfort that people have with changes in the world, you know, as we do away with sort of, you know, white privilege and male privilege and, you know, a sense of not having to justify yourself and more people become, you know, uh, you know, part of our society and, and want to have rights and things. Yeah. There are some people for whom that is difficult. For other people, uh, it's a great, wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, but but the way to 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 leverage that kind of racism and discrimination is to make people believe that they personally are are losing because of it. Absolutely. And I don't think that that's the case. I think there's you know, I mean, it, it, it's so interesting that you see businesses in California, you know, farmers that cannot find people to harvest their crops. Yeah businesses that cannot find people to work in their restaurants yeah because those people have traditionally come out from mexico and one of the reasons they're not getting them is not just because of the anti-immigration but also because as people come and get more prosperous they're actually going home and they want to stay there they don't necessarily want to stay in the united states if they can go home and have decent jobs yeah but we have this view i mean it's like you know getting rid of all of the foreigners who are in the national health service yeah and it's, it seems to me that actually, in, in, on that note, because uh, there's always been a figure that had, at least until quite recently, or over the past year or so, been raised in juxtaposition to Trump. And that is uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, the current, well, of course, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, uh, as he stood uh, in 2017 or 2016, was often raised as the, the sort of counterexample to Trump's brand of virulent, almost inward-looking, illiberal conception of politics and i was just wondering what your thoughts might be on justin's tenure and also justin as he is currently given uh, the the recent events that have unfolded since 2018. well i think i think if you look at the popular vote in canada all parties uh, uh, taken together there was a, a a majority not a huge majority but a majority for the kind of liberal approach that the yeah. liberal party takes i don't think justin trudeau anybody would argue that justin trudeau is a particularly um original thinker in terms yeah. of ideology i think there's no question he's very strong on social values of inclusion and fairness and he did something he said something that was very interesting after his first cabinet was created where he created a gender balanced cabinet and assuming yeah. he was the fifth leader to do such a thing in the world and Zapatero did it in Spain and others had done it. Yeah. But when he was traveling shortly after having done that, uh, the leader of another country said to him, why did you create a gender balanced cabinet? Why didn't you just appoint on merit? And he said, well, if I'd appointed on merit, I'd have had more women. And I think this is a very interesting comment yes. and a very good one because it, it, it points out that we assume that when we make a gender balanced cabinet that we're sacrificing yeah. that we are privileging somebody who didn't really earn their way there yeah because again we think men are the default category and for a lot of people when they see 
previously marginalized people or yeah. non-prototypical members of the of the elite being empowered they feel that they're losing something because they assume that they are that that is only happening if somebody who deserves it better is not getting it yeah and that is what is not true and so much of of what we see and i just you know refer you to that that wonderful film hidden figures yeah. about the three african american women who were among the most significant contributors to the american space program yeah. you know they've had buildings named after them and all this kind of stuff one of them was considered one of the most important minds ever in nasa yeah. but um, but because we don't think that people who look like that are math geniuses are, you know, are capable of, of doing incredible things in terms of, of, of computers, etc. Yeah. Then we think that, that they are there at the expense of somebody else. And that's what we really have to deal with. That's what I mean when I say that truth is important. We need to understand the truth of where the contributions are made in our world and who can make them. And therefore, what a just world looks like. And stop you know, assuming that there are losers in this game of social development. Yeah. And what? And that may be where one of them. And would you say that that is something you think Canada should aspire towards sort of maintaining its role in global politics as a sort of demonstration or at least some sort of exemplar of liberalism still functioning well, in an age where yeah. it seems to be dysfunctional I... around the world, uh, given the, the populist backlash and the a liberal rollback we see in Europe in yeah well I don't think we can survive unless we do keep to that yeah you know we're a very diverse country we're still struggling to to come to terms with how we've treated our indigenous people yes and we are crawling our way towards some kind of understanding but that's it's very hard because there are many people who assume that if indigenous people aren't front and center in the halls of power, it's because they're not able to be that way. And coming mm -hmm. to terms with how we have been the barriers, how cruel and unfair yeah. uh, have been the barriers that we've put up, um, you know, that that is hard, but 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 we have to do that. We, ha we have to stand for um, an approach that allows people to make the contributions that they're capable of making and not just assume that they can't. And I come to this you know, the, 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 the road that I take to this understanding is the the gender one, because yeah. coming, you know, as a woman and seeing the extent to which women's contributions have been ignored yeah. or taken by men, uh, you know, brilliant women scientists. When I was young, people said, well, where are the female geniuses? Well, now we've discovered there are all sorts of them. Yeah. That some of the most foundational thinkers of modern mathematics Absolutely. were women. You know, so <laughs> it, 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 we need to make visible yeah, those people who've made the contributions. And incidentally, the New York Times obituary section has created a whole new feature called "Overlooked No More" yeah. to to recognize the fact that they've yeah. been writing about white men and that they're leaving out a lot of really important lives in doing yeah. so. And just to close off our wonderful conversation and interview, I was wondering what would be your proudest achievement as indeed in your long and illustrated sort of career? And is there something that you would like to leave with our audience, especially aspiring female politicians who would like to learn from your experience and example? 
Well, you know, I served at all three levels of government in Canada. I started at the school board in Vancouver. I served in the provincial legislature, and then I served in the national parliament. And in every position I held, I always tried to make a difference. I never thought, oh, my job is just to, you know, be here and be elected and go out and say hello to the folks. I always tried to do something, whether it was bring in a new program in the schools in Vancouver, as I did with the International Baccalaureate Program, create something of value. Um, and so when I look back on the things that I've done, some of the things that I'm proud of are things that, you know, people haven't heard of. But, you know, I chaired a task force on heritage conservation when yeah. I was in the B.C. legislature uh -huh. that then uh -huh. went on to become a basis of legislation. Yeah. As, as Minister of Justice, I redid the Canadian Law and Sexual Assault. So I think what I would say is that, first of all, I survived and yeah. that I would say to women, you know, there is life after politics. And in every election, more people lose than win. So yeah. go for it. But secondly, find wherever you are, where what is your opportunity to use the opportunities that are that, that, that are there for you, the, the, the access you have to making change. And even if it seems a small change, do what you can and be a tile in the mosaic of progress. Absolutely. That's the hope that most of us can, can hope to be. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a genuine pleasure. And I really, really uh, thank you so much, uh, Kim, for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure and enjoy your your, your Rhodes Scholar experience. Thank it's you a wonderful much. I do hope that we can meet in person sometime or one day. That so. would be delightful. That would be delightful. You, All the best to you. Take care. Bye.